Man, it is good to see you guys. Each week we'll get some, some new folks we haven't seen back in like a year or so, and it's just starting to feel like home again. I love it. Um, we are in the book of Mark again uh, this week. We are in chapter 5, and uh, the scripture, as you heard it read earlier, the story is a little bit long, but I'm going to ask that you kind of bear with me while I read through it again uh, for the sake of those who may be watching uh, through the video recording or listening over the podcast um, so they know what in the world I'm talking about the rest of the time. So uh, once again, the uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, it says this. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and he saw him, fell at his feet, and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? The disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So we have this, this healing stories, uh, these two healing stories kind of sandwiched together. One that's interrupting the other one, very literally. And uh, I'll be honest, I, I, I struggled with this, with this sermon and what to, what to talk about. And healing, healing stories are always a little bit hard as a preacher, especially with so many people uh, who are so familiar with illness and sickness and pain and all that in the community right now. But I want to kind of back up from this and look at this from kind of the 10,000-foot view tonight, if you would. I want to look very broadly at what's happening here. Because I believe that we all live in a certain kind of tension that we don't get to escape, at least not this side of eternity. And that tension is between the world that is and the world that should be. 
In fact, if you were to break down most uh, of what is frustrating and maybe even heartbreaking in your life, I bet you could attribute this tension to those things, right? The world is this way, but it should be something else, right? You should have a boss that appreciates the work you do, gives you raises all the time, and celebrates you, but instead you have one for whom nothing is ever enough, right? We should have a federal government that works together to accomplish good for the country, but we have some version of professional wrestling with lots of fake outrage that where nothing really happens and no one looks good in tights. The world that is and the world that should be, right? I, as someone who's been doing ministry now for years, a long time, should be able to quickly write a sermon about healing st- stories that I've studied a thousand times. And yet... While that should be the world, instead I'm sitting on my side porch late last night, face lit by a blank screen on my laptop with total writer's block. We should still feel good like we used to. We should have stayed married. We should have stayed healthy or stayed thin or figured all this out. But that's not the world we live in. It should be different. We should act differently. The world shouldn't be like this. But it's not. It's not what it should be. Or rather, maybe to speak more faithfully about it, it's not yet. And there's the tension. We feel it every day in small and large ways. The truth that we need to accept reality on reality's terms in order to make any progress in this world, as messy as it is, but also this idea that we need to keep our eyes towards the clouds a little bit. We need to seek to move towards what should be. I thought of this image, and I'm certain I didn't come up with it. I just can't attribute it. So if you've heard it someplace else, please let me know, because I'm not trying to pretend I came up with it, but I really like it. To me, it's, like, it's the idea of like being on a playground swing where two opposite things are happening at the same time, right? In order to keep moving, we have to lean our heads back towards the earth while kicking our feet towards the heavens. And then we have to kick back down and then put our heads towards the clouds, right? It's the only way to keep moving is to kind of be pulling in both ways at the same time. And to me, this is part of what makes scripture so compelling and so important and often frustrating and hard to maneuver around. Because scripture tells this grand story that is oscillating back and forth between the world that is and the world that will be or the world that should be. It just swings back and forth. It doesn't shy away from the ugliness. There are things in the Bible that we wouldn't allow in a rated R movie. It doesn't shy away from the ugliness. I should have had a stronger point for that thunder. I'm sorry, I didn't time that well. Maybe maybe we'll, maybe we'll work out better next time. It doesn't shy away from that ugliness while it constantly casts its gaze towards the things, the way things should have been all along or one day will be again when all is redeemed. And ultimately, as people of faith, I believe we are called to plant one foot firmly in both places as uncomfortable as that sometimes is to swallow the bitter pills of a broken world, and to begin to embody the world that is to come at the same time, to lean and to kick. 
to be in this world as it is and to be what Scripture calls the first fruits of what is to come. A foretaste of the banquet that has yet to be thrown. This is one of the interpreted lenses and keys I always try to wrestle with as I'm going through Scripture and trying to interpret it and understanding it. What is this story trying to do? Is this story trying to tell me a truth about the world that is? Or is it trying to paint a picture of the world that is to come? Or, or both? Right, and it's a very important distinction to make. A, a lot rides on it. Much of what is awful in the Christian history is rooted in answering that question incorrectly. Very religious people have treated things that were descriptions of this world as prescriptions for what should be. And when you get the description and the prescription mixed up, you're in trouble, right? This is when the church is suddenly wrong catastrophically about things. This is where we begin endorsing things like slavery and genocide and nationalism and violence and misogyny and fill in the blank, the prohibition of dancing, you know, the bad stuff. Now, as an example, I'm pretty convinced that almost all of Jesus' healing stories are really intended to be stories about the world that is to come. Now, that's not to say that I don't think there was someone who was actually sick who was actually healed by an actual Jesus. I'm fine with that. I believe it. That's great. But I think they are more than just descriptions of a sick person made well. A sick person becoming well is a beautiful, sacred thing, but it's also a, a signal. It's also a sign of something larger to come. I mean, consider this somewhat, uh, I'd never thought of this until a couple years ago, having heard these stories my whole life growing up. Consider that in these gospels and all these healing stories, all those who are healed, even Lazarus and this little girl who were raised from the dead, all those who were healed at some point still got sick and died. Right? It didn't change the eventual physical outcome for them in this world as much as it delayed it. And therefore, I think it was more than just about a sickness going away in that specific place. In fact, if we're not careful to interpret them uh, other than that, it can be downright abusive in a world where very faithful people just don't get better sometimes. Rather, these healing stories feel out of place. There's something that sticks out about them and doesn't feel quite comfortable because they are out of place. They are kicking forward. And tonight's healing stories are no different. <clears throat> tonight's healing story doesn't fit in the world as we know it. Consider the, the two people we meet in this story. <clears throat> First, we have Jairus. He's a synagogue leader. He's an important and faithful man. A pillar of the community. Important enough to be given a name in this story. Where maybe even those who first read about him a generation later, might still recognize the name. Don't know. But he has the social cachet to approach this rabbi who has gathered a huge crowd around him to push through this crowd, to approach this rabbi and make a request, believing that he would be heard. Believing that this rabbi, with a crowd gathered around, would interrupt his plans or his teaching and go to his house and help his daughter. Now, I have no doubt that he is genuinely heartbroken here. I have no doubt that he is desperate, as any father would be. But it is a little striking, striking uh, that he was bold enough to feel like he could get away with this. 
it tells something about who he was in the community that he felt like he had the right to do it. The woman we see later certainly didn't. There is an understandable confidence and boldness in what he does, even in the midst of this heart-wrenching moment for him. And his miracle is then promptly interrupted by this woman. She has no name. She's defined by what is wrong with her. She's been bleeding for years. And that may sound like an uncomfortable medical condition to us, but it is more than that for her. She's destitute from trying to get it fixed, and things only keep getting worse. And religiously speaking, she's in a perpetual state of being ritually unclean. You could argue that her very physical presence in this crowd of religious people is a contaminant to the pious folks that are surrounding Jesus. When we know who both of these characters are, we know how this story should go. We know what happens in the world as it is. It would work the same way back then as it would happen today, right? Jairus' daughter would get attention and get care. He is important. He's established. He has the means in a very real way. He matters more to the world. We don't like to say it that way, but it's just the truth. In the world as it is, Jairus is less likely to get sick, less likely to be poor, less likely to be in prison, less likely to suffer on a day-to-day basis. He and his family are more likely to be healthy and given good care when they are not. Jairus is the kind of person where it just feels like the whole world reorients itself to make sure that he's safe and comfortable. And the woman, back then, just like today, in the world as it is, would be out of luck. She's unimportant. It's kind of embarrassing what's going on with her. She's vulnerable. She's impoverished. She's untouchable. She's the kind of person you pretend not to see out on the street because of how she makes you feel when you look at her. In today's world, she has to go to the emergency room for even the most minor of issues. Because after all, we can't all go to the same good doctors, right? There's not enough for everybody. If we are honest, the world just believes that she should have the dignity to suffer quietly and not bother us. That is how the story should go. That is how our world works. Except not here, not with Jesus. With Jesus, we have a different kingdom breaking through in our own. We're seeing these moments where heaven and earth begin to meet. Jesus is firmly planted in a world of sickness, in a world of kids who are dying, but he's kicking towards a world that should be. Jesus seems to be following our script until he doesn't. He gives Jairus an audience. He starts to follow him to his house. And just as Jairus is getting the attention he should, Jesus stops. And he gives time to the woman first. He calls attention to her publicly. He calls her daughter. He lets the whole crowd know of her faith and of her healing which again has much deeper ramifications than just, I don't bleed anymore. He doesn't let the healing end with a quiet miracle with which she would have been happy to sneak away 
No, he stops the world as it is and rewrites her story right here, right there. He stops everything for the one whom our world would never dream of stopping for. In fact, he stops long enough that Jairus' daughter dies. But that's not the end of the story either. Because this is about the world that is to come, where even death itself is not the end of the story. And in the world that is to come, scarcity is not the rule of the day. A little bread and a couple of fish can feed thousands. Wasting all of your inheritance does disqualify you from enjoying the party in your honor. There is enough for everyone's need in the world that is to come. We do not live in scarcity. And in this case, there is enough healing to go around, and death doesn't get the final answer. And Jairus' daughter is resurrected privately, quietly, with commands to keep it to themselves. Because as always, Jesus is terrible at marketing. And here in the story, suddenly we see what it looks like in a world when the last are first. Now the first still get in. There's still healing for the first. There's still resurrection for the first. It just doesn't go in the way, in the order that we think it should. It's like our world, but different. It's like our world, but better. And so scripture meets us in the tension with which we all live day to day. Feeling stuck in a world where some people get to cut through the crowd and others are left to silently bleed alone. But possessing eyes and hearts for another kind of world altogether and kicking towards it. And this is the tension we are called to live in. We are called to live in such a way that these kind of small miracles might begin to happen here and now. That the world that is to come might begin to invade the world as it is. We are called to be a community that is embodying the idea that the last are attended to first and the first patiently wait their turn. A community which believes in God's abundance and not the world's scarcity. A community that stops everything for the one who's ignored by everyone else. A community that holds on to the hope that someday, somewhere, there will be healing for us all and death itself will no longer be a barrier. And so we are challenged to try to live faithfully in the world as it is with our hearts in the world that is to come. To commit to living in this tension. To residing in both places at once but never resigning ourselves to the world as it is. Because as we know, we live in the real world as dark and deadly as it sometimes is. But we are to keep one foot firmly planted in the world that should and faithfully, we believe, will be. And we just keep swinging for what's next. Let's pray.